Hello everyone and welcome to episode 575 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I've been doing a lot, well, lots of reading because I've been in planes, trains and automobiles um, and including reading a lot of the authors who are going to be in upcoming episodes. I also like writing when I'm on planes, actually. I have to say that one of my most used devices is my iPad. I think I would be lost without it, really. Um, Having it with the keyboard means I can literally whip it out whenever I have a spare moment and start typing. You know, it's small enough to slip into my handbag. It doesn't weigh much. And I have to say, it's one of my most useful productivity tools ever. Uh, If I had a dollar for every word that I've typed into that thing, I would be a gazillionaire. I used to write a lot on my phone, not with my thumbs and fingers, which I find impossible, but I had a really cute foldable keyboard that connected via Bluetooth. Now I don't even bother with that. It's definitely iPad all the way for me. And my iPad has lasted forever, actually. I have a fairly old model and it's pretty much as great as the day I got it. I mean, in terms of cost per use, it would definitely be in like the micro sense, micro, micro, micro sense. I'm also very excited about the next seminar in our Focus On series. If you're new to the podcast, our Focus On series is a wonderful series of online seminars where you join via Zoom and we deep dive into a particular aspect of the craft of writing. And in the past, we've had Focus On subplots, Focus On How to Nail an Opening of a Novel, Uh, focus on how to write in multiple points of view and many others. The next one is focus on villains, which I know is going to be an awesome and juicy seminar. It's on Thursday, the 16th of November at, uh, so 2023, just in case you're listening to this in the future, at 7pm Sydney, Melbourne time. And it goes for an hour uh, for the seminar, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A, where you can ask all your burning questions. Now, I love these focus on seminars because of the very fact that they really deep dive into a particular aspect of writing. And villains is such a good one. I mean, if you're writing any sort of crime or mystery, then you're very likely to have a villain. And even if you're not, chances are there is an antagonist of some nature in your story. They may not be an evil villain in the traditional sense, but they are, you know, whether on purpose or unwittingly thwarting your main character in some way. We can often spend so much time on our protagonist that we don't pay as much attention as we should on our antagonist or, you know, villain. But they need to be as well-rounded as our main character, right? They need, we need to have characters that allow the reader to, well, kind of care about or be interested in what happens to them, even if they're the villain. But how do you do that successfully? hmm? This seminar will give you the framework that you need to know to create a villain that readers will want to understand and follow. So to book in and find out more, go to writerscentercomau slash villains. That's writerscentercomau slash villains. That's V-I-L-L-A-I-N-S. All right, now let's move on to our writing tip this week. We have, of course, the wonderful Nat Newman with us. Author, uh, narrator, actor, playwright, (laughs) (laughs) novelist, you name it, 
Nat does it. Uh, but anyway, how are you, Nat? What's happening? Oh, I'm great. You? How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. What have you been up to? Oh, just knee deep in rehearsals. Um, got a play. Yes, you're doing a play. Yes. Right. When's the play on? Uh, that starts next week, I think. Uh, what date? The Oh, when's that opening night? Actually, it's the 17th of November that opens. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's the play? Where is it performing? Where can oh, we see you? <laughs> it's called the Appleton Ladies Potato Race and it's at oh, the Newcastle yes. Theatre Company in Newcastle. And who do you play? Uh, I play Rania, a Syrian immigrant, actually. And what made you decide to do this play, Nat? <laughs> um, well, you know, auditions come out and you and you read the script and you go, yeah, that looks like, that looks interesting. That looks like fun. I think I could bring something to that role and yeah, you audition and you hope you get it. And then sometimes you do. It's a bit like writing, actually. You've just got to get out there and submit yourself instead of your writing. And, and sometimes, sometimes people like what you do and they accept you into their little play. So that's nice. How fun and how many performances in this run? Oh, my goodness. This is actually a really big one. This is my biggest play yet. This is going to be 11 performances. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. This is, what do you love most about it, about the actual when it's on? Um, my acting teacher says that when you're on stage, everything's on fire and the important thing is to make sure that the audience doesn't know that everything's on fire. So, um, and that's kind of exciting, like, because things are going wrong, you know, a door doesn't open when it should, or somebody misses a line or, um, a physical prop isn't where it should be. And you just have to live in the space well enough and know your character well enough and know the play well enough that you can just recover from those moments and keep pushing through. And the audience never knows how close everything is to, to disaster. <laughs> I love it. And I suppose that is only applicable to plays because in film, you just cut and do take two or take three yeah, exactly, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. All right. But let's move on to our writing tip this week. What have you got for us? Okay. This is an interesting one. So um, I have uh, lots of writer friends who will send me, you know, their manuscript for review. Uh, and one friend recently sent me a manuscript for a picture book and Valerie, it was 1200 words long. Oh, too long for a picture book. Yeah, wow. Too long for a picture book. So, I mean, there's no hard and fast rule, but, um, you know, I would say 500 words is probably a good word limit for yes, a picture book. Absolutely. Yeah. So 1200 words, just a little bit too long. Um, and, and I, the advice I went back to them with was, um, and it's, it's what we say in our writing picture books class as well, is just spend some time analysing picture books. Get your favourite picture books, have a read through them, see how many words are actually in the whole book, how many words are per page. Um, little things like that will just sort of set you up so that you're not sort of, you know, starting out on the wrong foot by straight away writing just this really, really long manuscript. So, yeah. It's one of the biggest mistakes that new picture book writers or rookie picture book writers make is they think that, they can write 1,200 words or however many words. Um, and and you're right, 500 words would definitely be the upper end of the limit. In fact, a lot of good picture books these days are 250 to 300 words. We were yeah. talking to Leslie Gibbs recently um, with her Dinosaur Dad series and hers is about 250 to 300. So 500 is even long-ish, but, you know, it's still acceptable. But, yeah, 1,200, no way. My goodness. Yeah. And as you know, it's heartbreaking oh. to then cut those words when you put so much time and effort into them. So yeah, better to to know starting out that um, you should be aiming for a, a, a lower word count. So true. Um, and thank you so much for that tip this week, Nat. Thank you. 
Now, I have a really cool competition for you this week. I have three copies of Mr. Einstein's Secretary to give away by none other than the wonderful Matthew Riley. Matthew Riley, of course, is the internationally best-selling author of the Scarecrow series, the Jack West series, and numerous standalone novels. I have three copies of his latest book, Mr. Einstein's Secretary, to give away. It's a gripping story that follows a young woman swept through some of history's most perilous eras. Here's the blurb. All Hannah Fisher ever wanted to do was study physics under the great Albert Einstein. But when, as a teenager in 1919, her life is suddenly turned upside down, she is catapulted into a new and extraordinary life as a secretary, a scientist, a sister and a spy. From racist gangs in Berlin to gangsters in New York City, Nazis in the 1930s and Hitler's inner circle during the Second World War, Hannah will encounter some of history's greatest minds and most terrible moments, all while desperately trying to stay alive. She is a most unique secretary and she will work for many bosses, from shrewd businessmen to vile Nazis to the greatest boss of them all. Mr. Albert Einstein. Spanning 40 years, this is the thrilling tale of a young woman propelled through history's most dangerous times. But read it carefully, because all may not be as it seems. Oh, okay. So go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 13th of November. You can bet this is going to be a cracker because everything Matthew Riley writes is a page turner. So check it out. Mr. Einstein's secretary or enter at writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are. Now, some of you may be familiar with this word and also this action, uh, but let's see. Bruxism. That's B-R-U-X-I-S-M. Bruxism. Bruxism is the habit of grinding your teeth, especially when you're under stress or sleeping. So you might say his nocturnal bruxism was driving her mad. There you go, bruxism. Now you have the technical word for it if you're ever hearing somebody grind their teeth. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Have a listen to Tanya Blanchard. It was really important for me to become a published author, particularly because of this story that I've written, The Girl from Munich. It's a story really close to my heart. It's a story of my German grandmother and growing up during World War II and what happened to her. So the fact that I was published with her story, first and foremost, is something very exciting and very meaningful to me. The course has had such an impact on my life and on my writing, on my life because I've always dreamed of one day becoming published and never imagined it was possible. But after doing the course, I realised that it was something that was definitely attainable and I was able to work towards that. As far as my writing goes, it improved my writing dramatically. It gave me so much more confidence that I could write. I had the skills behind me to do it now. And that meant that I could work faster and harder and, and just get the work done. And I've got so many more ideas of things that I can do now. And I just can't wait to, to write more. I write full time now. It's absolutely amazing that I'm able to do that. I would absolutely recommend one of the courses to anyone. If you're a writer or aspiring writer, 
go and do it. I wouldn't be sitting here without these courses that I've done. The skills that I've learnt have helped me along my journey and I'm now sitting here with a published book in my hands and I never thought that this was possible and it's because of these courses. Take it from me, go and do it, you won't regret it. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Christine Wells writes historical fiction featuring strong, fascinating women. Her latest novel is The Royal Windsor Secret, about a young woman who might be the secret daughter of the Prince of Wales. Her previous book, One Woman's War, is about the real-life Miss Moneypenny. She is author of six historical fiction novels under Christine Wells and ten historical romance novels, mainly under Christina Brooke. After graduating from university with a law degree, Christine worked in a large city firm specialising in corporate mergers and acquisitions, and she might still be a lawyer if she hadn't accepted a challenge from her friend to try her hand at writing a novel. And, of course, the rest is history. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christine. Well, thanks for having me, Valerie. It's a real pleasure. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you. You are so prolific, but we want to also delve into your latest novel, which is so cool, The Royal Windsor Secret. So for listeners and readers who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? The Royal Windsor Secret is about a young woman called Cleo Davenport who grows up at uh, Shepherd's Hotel, which is a luxury hotel in Cairo. And she comes to believe that she is the illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Windsor. So she goes on a quest to find out who her true parents are. But uh, there's a lot more to the book. You know, it, it spans many years and uh, it follows the journey of the woman who claims to be Cleo's mother as well. So we we have a dual timeline at World War One, and then we move into the 1930s with Cleo's story. So uh, lots there. What inspired this? Well, I, a few things really. I mean, my brain is such a melting pot of all different things I've read and researched. And uh, I, I'd read about Shepherd's Hotel a few times. Uh, there's a wonderful a mystery series by Elizabeth Peters called called the Amelia Peabody Mysteries, and uh, it's you know she's got a lot of very faithful fans, and this is about a Victorian archaeologist in the Victorian era who goes uh, to Egypt and meets an archaeologist, and and they have adventures and solve mysteries and things like that, and they always stay at Shepherd's Hotel, and then I was researching about the SAS and. All the during World War II, all of the SAS officers used to go out to the desert, do their missions, come back and stay at this luxurious Shepherd's Hotel. And it just seemed to be the epicenter of all of these glamorous, amazing people from history, you know, Mark Twain, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Aga Khan, all the European royalty used to stay there when they spent the winter in Egypt. And with Tutankhamun's tomb being discovered in the 1920s, there was this real craze for, for going to Egypt. So I really wanted to set a book there. And I was trying to come up with somebody famous to write about, someone who everybody would know. And I was looking at all of the women who had stayed there 
And uh, in the end, I stumbled upon the Duke of Windsor, um, who had had an affair with this French courtesan who stayed at Shepherd's Hotel. And so that's where this seed of an idea came from. What if out of that liaison there, there was uh, a child? So that's where the idea sort of... I love that. <laughs> so you, it started off with your fascination with the hotel itself and then it led into the actual story. I mean, I love a hotel setting. I'm, I wished that I had grown up in a hotel. Um, <laughs> I, there's some, something about the romance of, you know, these amazing hotels, right? But I love how this has then developed into something a great deal more. Now, we're going to come back to this book, but I'd love to give people some context because you, like, as I said, so prolific, you've written 10 historical romance, mainly under the name of Christina Brooke, and you've written six historical fiction under Christine Wells. Uh, obviously, you're interested in history <laughs> and you're interested in writing, but did you always want to be a writer when you were, you know, at school or younger? Oh, I, I was absolutely the biggest bookworm you'd ever meet. I mean, in those days, uh, I think you're probably younger than I am, but in those days you could only get three books out of the library at once. And uh, so I would use all of my family's library cards. I'd go to three different libraries. You know, it was a special day if Dad would take me to to one of the ones further afield. And so I managed to get more books every week because I, you know, just ripped through them so quickly. Uh, and I think a lot of people have had the same experience. But uh, I just, I thought authors were these magical creatures who, you know, every every word that flowed from their pens was like you dipped in gold and, and it was all perfect. And I, I never thought that I could really do that. Uh, and it wasn't until I was working as a lawyer, and I don't, I don't know why I took on more writing work, but I just, one day I just decided, oh, I might give it a go. And soon I just became so obsessed with it. I was, I must have been very painful to live with, I think, because every spare moment I was writing in my lunch hours when I had them, you know, if I had to wait to be picked up in the evening, I sort of do a few words there. Uh, so I never really believe people when they say, oh, I write all day and I'm too tired to write. No, if, you, if you've got the chops to be a writer and, and stick with it through all the ups and downs, which there will be, uh, you really need to, to not make those excuses and just do it. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Now, that, that it, you thought that authors were these mythical creatures and I guess they just weren't an option for you. So what made you pick law? Well, I love words and I, you know, my father was a lawyer, so I guess it wasn't a terribly imaginative thing to do, but I wasn't really a maths and science person and I, I just thought, uh and I did enjoy it, actually. I, I I was in the commercial side of things, so I'd draft contracts and things like that. And the precision you need when you're a lawyer was really good training for me, I think. So I, I, I did really enjoy it. And obviously 
you know, I hadn't ever considered being a full-time writer, but I always thought writers were poor and starved in garrets. So I don't think I would have, I'm quite a practical person. <laughs> I don't think I would have chosen that as a, a career to start off with. I love that because that is the um, the myth that I was sold as well and therefore uh, that's why I didn't choose it to start off with um, and I went into professional services and accounting and then I realised, you know, later that that's just, that's li it's literally a myth. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. So you, you go into law, you you do mergers and acquisitions. At what, how many years into your law career did you then think I'm going to try writing and then become obsessed in the way that you did? I think it wasn't too long, actually. It was about four years in. And uh, yes, it wasn't very long after that, that I decided to leave the law and write full time. So, yeah. But that's a big decision. That's a big decision. Yeah. So what led up to that? How did you have that confidence to leave a full-time, you know, a, a very good, a well-paid career to, to write full-time? Talk think, us up to that decision. <laughs> it was really difficult and I think it was a bit of a silly decision in hindsight, but... Uh, what led to it was deciding, well, this life, you know, my husband was a partner in a law firm by then and I was uh, quite a bit behind him in the career a and we were talking about having children and it just seemed to me what a perfect life to stay home with the children and write and we had a bit of a bargain. <laughs> he let me stay home for a year, free children. I had a year to write. In hindsight, that was the wrong time to do it because I hadn't got a contract yet or anything like that. And uh, that was a real transition because I was on my own a lot while all my friends were working in office jobs. And, uh, yeah, that I looking back I really don't know what possessed me except that I was so obsessed with the writing so I think you know all up it took about five years before I got published with Berkeley and in, in um it's an imprint of Penguin in the United States uh but yeah it was it was certainly a leap of faith in more ways than one so five years is a long time to keep the faith what mm. kept you going well, I joined Romance Writers of Australia and Romance Writers of America, and uh, I, I know romance gets a really bad rap, but I can tell you those those writers are so professional and they're, they're, the hope that they give you is that they run contests that are judged by commissioning editors. So I was entering contests and doing quite well in them and getting good feedback from from the editors and actually what led to selling was a contest that I won and the editor said, I want to buy this book. But I I, I didn't uh, jump at that chance straight away. I, I, ha I had learned a lot from all the, the people who, around me. And uh, the, the idea is that you get an agent. And so I... Especially for America. Yeah, especially... Yeah especially for America. 
uh, where it, you know, it's quite a complex thing and they have to negotiate the contracts and know, um, you know, even being a lawyer, I look at the contracts and I might not know the conventions or the law in, in the US. Uh, so, so I had been querying agents at the time and hadn't received many responses. And so I was on the phone to New York agents trying to trying to interest them because, you know, you've got an offer in hand. Of course, a lot of them would be interested. So, you know, I think I got that email, I want to buy your book on the Thursday and by the Monday I had a contract with a different publisher. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. So you in that time you got an agent and the agent got a deal with someone else. Yes. Well, she, on the Friday, she said, okay, I'm going to send it around to all the different houses. And then she played two of them off. They had to read it by the Monday and she played two of them off each other and got me. Fantastic. So she, she earned her commission straight away. Fantastic. What was yeah. the name of the first novel? Uh, it was called Scandal's Daughter and it's out of print now, very sadly. <laughs> okay, so Scandal's Daughter, can you recall, like, you after toiling away for five years, uh, could you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was heavily pregnant with my second child at that time and it was about four in the morning when I got this news, so I was sort of running around the house very quietly screaming. <laughs> Oh, my God, I love it. Okay. It was a great, great day, yeah. So that was the start of um, many historical romances. When did you decide and why did you decide to make the transition to historical fiction? I think as I went through, you know, as the indie um, movement started and people were writing so fast, I mean, when I started, they wouldn't let me write more than one book a year. And then by the end, it was like, oh, if you have a book every three months. And, and I was writing, you know, no matter whether I'm writing romance or straight historical fiction, the research is very important to me. And I would always have some, some element of history that I put in my books, in my romances as well. So uh, I just couldn't write that fast. And even I moved to two books a year and that was too fast. So, you know, 100,000 word novels, two of them a year was a lot with, I had small children, one was on the autism spectrum. You know, there was a lot going on. So uh, I, I decided because um, Penguin in Australia had been publishing my romances, they've been, um, doing them in beautiful trade paperback here. Uh, I got to know one of the editors there and she said to me, oh, we'd love you to write, you know, something for us, something else. And that's when I started to think, you know, what I really wanted to write when I started out was more that Kate Morton style of historical novel. They didn't publish them here. They didn't publish any European set books much at all. Mm, so, uh, yeah, she really opened up that that market, and I thought, well, that's that's what I'll do, and I'll have you know, in the historical fiction market, you can take as long as you like to write a book. I mean, I still do one a year, which is a lot. 
but I think I took 18 months to do that first one and really get into the era of research, the era that I was writing. It was 18th century England and um, just loved it so much. <laughs> and I still love romance. It's just that I'm not a fast writer. And I think to really do well in that market, you have to be a fast writer. Okay, so they've all got this common thread of history. Where does this fascination come from and is it a particular era that you were really more fascinated by? I uh, I think it it comes from my dad. I mean, it's so sad. I mean, I, I did law because he did it and I love history because he loves it. But That's not sad. That's no, sweet. <laughs> it, it, it's very true that you know, he would tell me stories from history like it was a bedtime story. And so I knew all about the Wars of the Roses and all, all of that sort of traditional English, British history, European history, and uh, he would make it really interesting to me. So then I went on to read, obviously, and I was obsessed with Elizabeth I as many young girls are because she's such a powerful, you know, just powerful women from history really stepping out of their assigned roles and uh, doing amazing things. And they're the sort of women I love to write about. Uh, as far as an era goes, I think, you know, I loved the Regency. That was where I set my historical romances. Uh, I think in historical fiction, that's not such a popular era. Uh, and so I moved into, from the 18th century, I moved into more World War II styles of things, but I'm less of the, you know, keep the home fires burning writer and more of the parachuting into occupied France kind of, <laughs> kind of writer. So, so I... I was um, writing about female spies and agent provocateurs and things in World War II and that, that, that's been a really fertile ground. I love it. So um, I, like, I love how you came to the idea for the Royal Windsor Secret via this hotel, right? But your previous uh, novel, One Woman's War, which is about the real Miss Moneypenny, how in the world did you get into that? Well, as I said, I'm a bit obsessed with spies uh, and although I acknowledge that James Bond is extremely problematic, I, I still have quite a fondness for the franchise and, and I became interested in Ian Fleming because he actually worked in naval intelligence, you know, intelligence for the Navy, not not belly button intelligence. <laughs> um, uh, so he, he was quite high up in the hierarchy of naval intelligence in World War II and it was his idea that spawned Operation Mincemeat. You know, he, he's had all these weird and wonderful ideas that really seemed to belong to a novel but actually they carried out Operation Mincemeat, which was floating a dead body off the coast of Spain with all of these papers on him to indicate to the Germans who would in, end, eventually end up finding these papers that the Allies were going to invade via Greece rather than 
uh, Sicily, which was everybody knew it was it was going to be Sicily. So they were trying to fool the Germans into moving some of their defences off Sicily, and it actually worked, which is extremely surprising on many levels. And I think there might have been a bit of bungling uh, that happened on the German side to to really fall for that one. But anyway, that was that was where the story came from. But the thing about Ian Fleming is that even though he's so dismissive of women in his novels, he was surrounded by extremely strong, clever women. You know, his mother was incredibly dominating and it might actually explain why he was like he was. Um, and, and of course, he had this secretary who when she she got married and had to leave, they said she was putting the war effort back because she was so such a great secretary and and you know of course she did more than just typing and filing um a lot of very intelligent you know she was university educated and very smart woman and quite redoubtable so she took part in this operation mincemeat and i thought oh that's a fantastic story i've got to write about her love it so with the research obviously you have to do a lot of research now you have a natural um interest in this you know um space in this era anyway so you can draw on stuff that you've uh, that's obviously already in your brain but how much research do you have to do or or maybe let's tell us the framework like what's the system you 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 kind of decide we'll take the royal windsor secret as an example okay i've got this idea now um you know that's come out of my interest in this hotel what happens then do you do a whole bunch of research first and then start writing or do you write and research as you go along uh, I think that you've got to be careful with research because, of course, you can spend years on it and never actually write a word. So uh, it's it's a real by-feel thing for me. It's not very systematic because it depends who you, what you're researching as to how much information is out there already. Obviously, with World War II, there's just reams and reams, but about Patty Bennett, who I was writing about, um, that there was much less. With Shepherd's Hotel, it was a case of, I really want to visualise this hotel. It doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, how much information can I find? Can I find accounts of guests who stayed there? There are a couple of books on it. One was uh, the architectural side of it and the other was more uh, an anecdotal kind of thing and then branch out, you know, I just followed all these little rabbit holes and uh, my research is not at all, uh, I'm not trained in as a historian, so it's probably not very systematic or, or uh, <laughs> you know, um, even all that comprehensive. But I just, I think I, you know, I try to limit the research before I write and then uh there's a feeling I get when I think I'm ready to write. But you could, I've done enough research. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And start, and then as things go on, I might research a particular place that I'm setting this scene in, or you know, a little bit more, or uh, chase some detail. But I, I try to leave the details that I don't need in order to 
keep going with the story till mm. the end. <laughs> I'm actually doing that now and filling filling in all the hashes from the draft that I've just written. So, yeah. Like, oh, he went up to the X, eighth floor or whatever, the <laughs> X floor because you need yeah. to know how many floors that building had, right? Yeah. So do yeah. you have any go-to resources that you love for your um, research into history? I love the National Archives. Uh, that's where you find all the uh, release, newly released spy stuff <laughs> and there's some real gems I've found in there. I found uh, there's a character in One Woman's War who was a real person called Friedel Gärtner and she was an Austrian double agent. So she was working for MI5 but the Germans thought she was working for them and uh, found her file and, and, you know, heavily redacted but pages and pages of her reports and of the memos into office memos where they're talking about her and what they think of the information she's sent them. So that was just, I was, you know, I was shaking when I found that. Because you could literally just spend all your time reading these sorts of things because they're yeah. so fascinating, right? Yeah, that's right. And I, I send them to my dad and then he sort of says, oh, did you put this bit in? And I'm just going, oh, yeah, it doesn't really fit in the story. Oh, you should really put that in. <laughs> wow. I, oh, that's so that's that's so cool. So let's say you get that, you do all this research, you get that feeling, okay, I think I've done enough. Now it's time for me to write. What does that look like for you as in talk me through like a typical writing day, your routine, like what time you start, what you aim for, what, you know, what does the day look like? I've actually changed my process slightly just with this last book and I, I, I the jury's out still on whether it worked. Uh, but I used to write completely as a pantser. So I would not, having a daily word count really throws me because uh, if I don't really, if I'm not feeling it and I'm not making that word count, the words I write once I hit the wall are usually cut anyway. <laughs> so, but then I realised that actually that was just because I was making the word count too high and I found that uh, when I, I just recently took on a part-time job, it was to help out a friend initially and then I just I've stayed and stayed and stayed and I'm going to stay until they kick me out. So, cause I really, you know, it's nice to go into an office and, and just be with people for a little while and it's totally flexible, but I decided, okay, before I, I need to get my words done before I go to work. So that is the impetus. So as soon as I wake, I wake up really early in the morning. Like what time? Uh, three or four. Oh, <gasps> Yeah. What? Why? Like, I know why. Why? It's what works for me. You know, it's, it's a hangover from having young children, and I would always want to get my words done before they got up, and they'd get up at five, <laughs> or one of them would. So, yeah, it's just a habit I've never really broken. But, you know, so sleeping in till 6 a.m. feels like sleeping in to me. But anyway. It's crazy. I know. I should stop <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. So I want to get my words done before I leave for work in, in the morning. And actually, what time do you leave for work? So you, you go from three or four till when? 
Um, it varies, but, you know, I might leave at 7 or I might leave later. Just to, if I don't get my words done, I don't go. I, you know, like I'll get there at 10 o'clock if I haven't got my words done. And I found that to be really cathartic because writing has always come second to everything else uh, in my life just because I'm a bit of a people pleaser and I've got to, you know, if I've got to drive the children somewhere, I'm never going to say to them, look, no, I haven't, I've got to get my words done. Um, so I think that's been really good for me. It's like I'm not going to that important day job until I've done my words. <laughs> and wow. so this is the first book I've done that word count thing religiously. And I've, I've fin- instead of sort of screaming up to the deadline, I finished early. <laughs> but then, then I kind of go, well, but I've missed my month where I'm just manic and I just love it and I'm just can't think you know things don't get done around the house and I'm just in that world the whole time so it's been a bit of a trade-off for me because usually I used to be sort of the couple of months up to deadline I was just in a panic going nuts for it yeah so what Mm -hmm. how many what is your word count goal now that you have prioritized doing your words before you go to your job well it's about 800 words and Usually I do a lot more than that, but that's as many as I can do on the days where I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I can so, get 800 words. So do you, though, have a deadline that's agreed with a publisher and then work backwards, or are you waiting till you're right and then just sending it to the publisher when you're ready? Oh, no, I always have a deadline, which I set, but then they go and put my release dates in the same month as my deadline and... Oh yeah, because I release in yeah release in America as well as Australia, and they're two different months. Mm. So it's this time. So it was September and October. My deadline's on the thirty first of October. So yeah, I I just couldn't do my usual screaming. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to me about getting into the worlds of your novels. Um, uh, do you have like anything, anything visual, like a, a Pinterest board or you, do you, do you do anything like that to, to get into the right headspace? I do a lot to immerse myself in that era. I, I, I do Pinterest boards, which I keep secret until the book's published and then I share them with uh, readers and they're very helpful too for the uh, publisher to to get the cover ideas because I put comparable covers and things like that and and show them what my heroine looks like. Uh, so so that's very helpful. And then, but I also I try to watch um, movies or read novels that were actually written at the time because I think. Um, there's only so much in history books that you can pick up. Uh, and, you know, like I, I think I read in an Oscar Wilde play that they had a, an electric doorbell. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, how would you find that out from a, just a dry nonfiction history book? But that's easily evident from a novel or a play or something like that. So I like to really get into that headspace of what it was like in that era uh and that's yeah that's how I I sort of do it and 
Shepherd's Hotel is, was actually in a black and white movie uh, that I found on YouTube. So, you know, it it burned down in 1952, but this movie was uh, black and white set before that. So that was really interesting. And then The English Patient, um, even though it wasn't the actual hotel, that's where some of the movie was set. So that was that was interesting too, just to get that feel for for what the because it's just not there anymore. You can't visit it. So, and so with uh, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you used to be a full on pants up, and you're now you're a little bit more disciplined with doing this, getting to your word count um, before you go to your job. However, have you evolved the pantsing to the point of having more structured plotting? Yeah, I think I've had to, as I've been writing about real people and uh, historical events where I've got signposts. So with um, with uh, the Royal Windsor Secret, Cleo had to have been born at a certain date because of the affair having taken place in 1918. So that sort of started me off and then you know, I wanted her to have her presentation to the king when Edward VIII was king, which was only one year. <laughs> he did one presentation and then he was gone. So she had to be of a you know a certain age, and 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 that was something I wanted to have in there. So as I look at what my timeline is, you know, Operation Mincemeat, obviously that was heavily bound by when everything occurred in that operation and I I didn't I don't like to change timelines where of major events around I think you know that's got to be set in stone so then I weave the story through it but I work on the software program Scrivener which oh I'm yeah fantastic yeah and uh so I plan, I, I plan it, like I've got all my index cards and, you know, they're all colour-coded and point of view and timeline and and then I just, <laughs> then it just all goes out the window when I'm writing and, and you know, I'm, I'm writing towards these signposts I've got for myself. But, um, I yeah, I just, I think if you're a true pantser, it's very hard to say, okay, this today well, I can say today I'm going to write the scene, but I can't go much further than that without mm-hmm. sort of feeling like I'm very caged in. One of the things that's so fantastic about your books, well, there's many things, but one of the things obviously is just the characters, you know. They're just so rich and layered and 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 mesmerising. But also the other thing I love is that you learn so much. And you just learn these little things that you just n- never would have probably gone and researched on your own, unless you were obsessed with that era, of course. So you learn so much and um, and it's just such a satisfying experience. What's your, um, before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you, what's your, what would your top three tips be um, for aspiring writers who would just love to be, have written their 16th novel one day? <laughs> Oh, thanks for I really appreciate you saying that, Valerie, because I love my characters. And I, I think that is a really important thing is character story comes first. I, I see 
you know, I mentor uh, writers and and uh, have a lot to do with giving workshops and things like that. So I see a lot of historical fiction writers who are so in love with the history that they forget it's fiction and it's got to be a story, you know, and, and you can get so much historical information in there without doing these big info dumps as they call them and and you know just weaving it in and I, I think an important thing to do is to immerse yourself in your research but then step away from it and just write a good story that's that's probably the number one tip for historicals the other thing I'd say is that there are no historical accuracy police. So, you know, stop worrying that Joe Bloggs is going to write to you and tell you you used the wrong kind of firearm in, in that particular battle. You know, I think there, there are all levels of historical accuracy and you've got to decide how accurate you want to be. I mean, did you research the weather that day? Sometimes the weather is really important to know because it affects your, the events of the book. Sometimes it is not important to know and you can have a sunny day on Wednesday, the, you know, whatever or whatever. Uh, so that's another tip I'd give is just don't worry about history. Don't let it stop you writing. Uh, and the third thing is, you know, we all have our lovely favourite eras that we just are in love with uh, and you have to accept that sometimes those eras are not as popular as others. So if you are desperate to write that particular story in that particular era, go ahead, but you've got to realise that publishers, traditional publishers, are in a business and they want to sell lots of books so you might have more trouble selling historical fiction in some eras than in others. And unfortunately, that's just the way it is. But it doesn't, doesn't mean you won't be able to sell the book if it's good enough. It's just going to be that little bit harder. Such fantastic, practical and useful and inspiring advice. Everyone, go get your copy of The Royal Windsor Secret by Christine Wells. Absolutely get your hands on it. Buy it as a Christmas present. Whoever you give it to is going to love it. And thank you so much for your time today, Christine. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Valerie. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Christine. I really can't believe she wakes up at 3 a.m. I, I just could not do that myself. But, you know, it seems to work for her and she certainly gets the words done. All right. So thank you so much for joining me this week. I really appreciate you spending time um, listening to this podcast. If you would like to join the listener community on Facebook, then just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Um, it's free to join. Lots of people from lots of walks of life, supporting each other, asking questions um, and uh, making connections as well. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, and I live my other life as an artist over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources giveaways, competitions, and much more.